You are listening to the Life Community Church Sermon Podcast. Life Community is a church for the city, making much about the name of Christ. This podcast is available through all major platforms, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. If you enjoy and are challenged by our teaching, we invite you to subscribe to the channel on whatever platform you choose as we seek to anchor ourselves to the unchanging truth of God's Word together. Thanks for listening. Good morning, everybody. So at least all of you remember to set your clocks forward. Yeah. So about an hour from now, when everyone else starts trickling in, be sure and give them a nice warm welcome, okay? Because we want to make sure they don't feel badly that they didn't listen to the thousand messages they got this week saying, set your clocks forward. Okay, anyway. Um, hey, welcome to Life Church. If this is one of your first few times here at a Life Community, we want to welcome you. Thanks for coming. I hope that you have a chance to engage God today because that's what we're hoping to do. A little, a little about us, we, we have some, a way we describe ourselves, and it goes like this, and if you're here regularly, you could probably say it along with me. We are a church for the city, making much about the name of Christ. And we do that in four specific ways that we've decided are going to be important values for us. First, we practice love with everyone always. Very important. Then we give more than makes sense. Um, we want to then... Uh, chase after the likeness of Christ in every part of our lives. And lastly, we anchor all that in the unchanging truth of God's word. And that's who we are, and that's kind of how we, that's the filter we run everything through here at Life. And um, if you want to know more about who we are, you can talk to me after the service. I'll be out front. So we've been doing Job, and we've been doing it for a long time, because these guys are windbags. Am I right? I mean, they don't, just, they don't just say what they're going to say. They say what they're going to say. Then they say what they said. Then they say, then they say again what they said they were going to say, that they said what they said. And then they start over. So, and what it is, though, is it's this really high, lofty form of Hebrew poetry. That's the, that's the literary tool they use to do this. So the narrator who's telling the story uses this technique to kind of get the images going in our mind. So that's how it rolls. But it is telling a story as well. So I'm going to get us caught up a quick, this is the Reader's Digest, where we've been and where we're at now, which is at chapter 32. We're going to, do, going to introduce this new guy. Um, so here's what's happened so far. God says, there's this man that I call blameless. Check him out. And then an accuser in the crowd says, well, he's only blameless because you treat him like, you know, really good. And God says, oh, really? So I'll let you test him. And the accuser goes and he does test him. And God says, but you can't kill him. So here's what he takes. Everything. Everything. Anything you hold dear in this life, aside from the very breath in your lungs, was taken from Job. They took his, his wife and kids. They took all of the, the buildings and the things he owned, all his stuff. They killed all his livestock. Even his servants and stuff were killed or taken captive, whatever. He's lost everything. He's laying in a pile of rubble with and his, and his health. The, guy, the, the accuser attacks his health. He's got boils all over himself. He's, he's, he's thin. You can see his bones. And he's laying there, sitting there, but whatever. He's in this pile of ashes with a piece of broken pottery, which is probably the only thing he owns in the world now. And he's scraping these boils off his skin. It's bad. It's gotten ugly. So that's where he's at. Well, usually stuff like that doesn't happen in a vacuum. Everybody kind of figures out, hey, what's up, what's up with Job, right? So the news gets out. It goes to the surrounding towns and villages. We don't really have a timeline, but I'm sure some time has gone by. Three people that are acquaintances or friends of his said, hey, they somehow contact each other. I don't know how this networking happened back then. They didn't have cell phones. I don't know what they did. So 
uh, and they said, hey, let's go and comfort him. So they show up on the scene, and they are so aghast, I mean, just so in shock at how he looks, and they just, that they just sit for seven days. They just sit. They don't say a word. They're silent. Can you imagine seeing somebody that's so bad that you just think, I got nothing. Okay. So they sit there. After seven days, Job finally comes out, and he laments as you probably would, right? I mean, it's, it's gone pretty badly for you. And he cries out to God, and um, he, 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 he just wants an answer. And he actually goes, so he doesn't just say, oh, I've lost all this, and what was me? He starts kind of coming at God a little bit, and he says, he starts questioning whether God is really just or not. Is, is justice still alive in God's universe? You know, that's kind of what he's starting to question. And, and he, he, as, he, as you can see, his discussion goes, he starts to morph a little bit. He gets away from just the woe is me and, and God, what's, what's the whole justice? And he starts looking for reasons. He recognizes what he misses most is his relationship with God. That's kind of in one of his little speeches. Uh, so he gives his first speech, though. And then, then the friends are there. And in a very helpful sort of way, they pile on. So then they start this back and forth where... The, the friends accuse him, said, well, obviously there's some big sin in your life, uh, because in that day, the prevailing thought was this. Here's, here's theology in Job's era. If you live right, God blesses you, and everyone can see that you're blessed. So, so it goes both ways. If you live right, God blesses you, and by, they draw this conclusion, if it looks like you're living blessed, you must be right with God. But they also believe the opposite. If you live badly, God punishes you. But the other is true. If I see you living in a punished way of life and you're suffering, obviously it's because you're living badly. There's sin. And that was their theology, the prevailing theology. So they come to Job, and they see what they see with their eyes, and they say, obviously you've sinned. And this goes back and forth because Job keeps saying, and he never, first of all, God called him blameless. God never called him sinless. Job, in his own confessions, and, and as this conversation goes, says, yeah, I've sinned, but I've repented. But what he's saying is, right now, in this instance, I was right before the Lord when all this happened. And he sticks to his guns. They accuse him. He says, no, I haven't. They said, yes, you have. No, I haven't. And it goes back and forth and back and forth. At the end of the day, nothing really comes of it, but they both all stated their case. It even goes to a point where Job finally says, and near the end of, one, uh, of this whole section, that surely God is, must be, if God is just, if he's just, surely there will be someone who can stand and make my case before God, because apparently I can't because can't, God's not listening. Someone surely will stand and make my case for me and, and defend me in the future. And I mean, it doesn't take much of a stretch to see that's probably alluding to Jesus, but they had no knowledge of that. See, we have the New Testament, so we have we see that picture. And we go, oh my gosh, that's like, isn't that what Jesus does? He stands and defends us. He goes to God and says, "I'm going to make your case, not because you're so great, but because I love you." And so he's he's in this uh, sort of uh, uh, lawyer role, a defender role. Um, and so that kind of brings us up to where we're at now. So now that gets to verse 32. Now remember, at the very beginning of the story. It says all this stuff happens to Job, and Job has three friends who come to visit him. So there's Eliphaz, there's Zophar, and there's Bildad. And now all of a sudden, just out of the blue, out of the blue, we get this younger guy 
named Elihu who says, now Elihu's going to say something. And I was like, well, who's Elihu? And see, I see, Zophar, Eliphaz, Bildad. That's three. Who's this fourth guy? Now I've got this fourth guy on the scene who apparently has been there the whole time. Nobody thought to mention him at the beginning of the story. So we, we talked about in our class today, maybe he was a servant or an apprentice of one of these guys because that's kind of how things rolled. Here's what we know about Elihu. And I'm saying Elihu because that's how I learned it. But if you listen online to people or if you did any extra study, some people say Elihu. I don't know. I'm going to say Elihu because that makes me feel better. So there. Um, so here's what we know about Elihu. He's younger than the other three. And so because he's younger and in that culture, younger men remained subservient or less. They considered themselves less than older men. So your elders, which doesn't necessarily mean super old, just means older than you. Your elders were given respect the assumption was, you've lived more days on this earth. You've encountered God to a depth I couldn't have because you've had more time. And your wisdom then will be greater than mine. And so in that culture, the way young men learned is they learned from the older men. The older men taught the younger men. And then when they grew up and became the older men, they taught their younger men. And when they became, you see the pattern, right? But it was disrespectful for a young man to come into a group of older men and just start blabbing. Like, hey, have you guys heard or whatever? You know, let me tell you this. It was like, no, that, you just didn't do that. So he's been silent this whole time. In chapter 32, he says that he waited, letting days speak and many years teach wisdom. So he was, he was doing the right thing. But he also says, and I'm going to paraphrase, but on the inside, my brain, my head was going to explode because you guys are idiots. Something like that. Um, He's like, Look, for all your lofty words, you guys didn't say nothing. I'm sitting here silent thinking, I'm just going to bite my tongue. But he's, so Vani, he says, I can't take it anymore. I mean, if you read that opening passage, he said he can't contain himself. He's like, I'm done. You guys, what, I don't know what you're thinking. And so he says, since you guys weren't able to do it, he, he says, well, young buck, uh, I got something to say. And so he starts in. And he, he just plows into this conversation with his words, and he, and he plows into both Job and to the friends. And then he extols and starts describing some things, the way he sees this, this, this God ruling kind of thing. And we'll talk about that in a minute. So he starts in with Job first. And he tells him he's angry at him primarily because he questioned whether God was just. He's like, who are you to question whether God is just? And so he was, he was angry at Job for that. He also suggested that Job probably should have been listening to God and, and recognizing that maybe all this suffering was God trying to tell you something and you refuse to hear it. So he's got these two things against Job. And he actually says this in chapter 33, speaking of that, how God can speak and then we, we don't necessarily hear it. In chapter 33, starting in verse 14, he says this, for God does speak. Now one way, now another. So he's, what he's saying is there's multiple ways, right? Now one way, now another, though no one perceives it. In a dream, in a vision of the night, when deep sleep falls on people as they slumber in their beds, he may speak in their ears and terrify them with warnings to turn them from wrongdoing and keep them from pride, to preserve them from the pit, their lives from perishing by the sword. Or someone may be chastened on a bed of pain chastened and to chasten is to like it's it's i'm i'm trying to uh moderate you or get you to kind of just ease up 
It's not, chastening isn't punishment, that's chastising, and I'll talk about that in a couple minutes, but, so if chastening is just, they're trying to bring, just moderate somebody's position, just ease up a little bit, that's chastening. Um, So he says, um, someone may be chastened on a bed of pain with constant distress in their bones, so that their body finds food repulsive and their soul loathes the choicest meal. Their flesh wastes away to nothing, and their bones, once hidden, now stick out. They draw near to the pit and their life to the messengers of death. Sound like Job? Maybe a little bit? Just saying. Yeah. Yet, if there is an angel at their side, a messenger, one out of a thousand, sent to tell them how to be upright, and he is gracious to that person and says to God, spare them from going down to the pit. I have found a ransom for them. Let their flesh be renewed like child's. Let them be restored as in the days of their youth. Then that person can pray to God and find favor with him. And they will see God's face and shout for joy. He will restore them to full well-being. Does that sound like something we may have read in the New Testament? That, that, that there might be someone, a messenger, who goes to God and says, Spare them. I have found a ransom for them. Again, all these allusions to the way God works. This is not this idea of a ransom to pay your penalty is not something we just discovered, you know, hundred or fifteen hundred years later when when the, in the first century. This had been in the minds of created men from early on that that there was a punishment and therefore something would pay could pay that punishment. That that was not new. But Elihu here sort of starts taking a different view overall. In, in the rest of his passages, he starts looking and, and he says, he, he's saying that perhaps, he just, just consider this, he says, um, that there, maybe there's a higher purpose. Maybe, just maybe, this idea of this very strict and certain way we always thought, which is which sin equals punishment, and, and punishment always goes to sin, and, and right living leads to, to blessing, and blessing always means you're living right, maybe that's not really accurate. Maybe, it's, maybe that's too narrow, he's saying. Maybe there's a higher purpose for suffering. Perhaps suffering can prepare somebody, because he gives us the idea of a dream. God can come to you in a dream and say, hey, knucklehead, I, I can see where you're going. Maybe you're not sinning, but I'm telling you, if you're going down that path... It could be ugly, and he'll give you some ugly dream and to make you think, oh, you wake up and you go, man, I, I, that, that's like what I'm doing at work. I, gotta, I didn't realize that was a problem. I got I to gotta really correct that. So maybe he's just trying to, trying to change your course. Maybe it's not punishment for sin. Perhaps it prepares people for some future event or, or uh, a way to avoid maybe an even worse potential catastrophe, although I don't know that in Job's case we could think of something much worse. But, but that could be, that's what it is. He seems to say this, suffering may be moral rather than penal. Suffering could be designed to restore rather than requite. You know, requite means to pay back, like to, re- to return in kind what you get. It may be for chastening and not chastising. You know, chastening, uh, is, is to have a moderating effect or restraining effect. Chastising is like, you're in trouble, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get you, right? get your punishment, you're, you're, you're whatever that is. Um, so so he has got this sort of higher picture, and you're thinking, oh yeah, okay, I think I'm on, I, can, I, can, I can roll with some of what he's saying. Uh, but he doesn't really let uh, Job off the hook because he accuses him of not listening. 
He says, after he explains kind of how this could work, he says, but God's obviously talking to you, and you're not listening. You're just being stubborn. You're just saying, but I didn't earn this. I didn't deserve this. And he's saying, maybe it's not about what you deserve. Maybe it's something else. Now, we're going to find out later that it, it, this sounds like Elihu's being all lofty here, but eventually Elihu kind of slides back into his chains and all that baggage he carries about the way theology works, and, and you'll see that. At the end, he still comes out and says, but deep down after all that, there's probably sin in your life, and you need to get that right. So it's like he doesn't even listen to his own message sometimes. But God's grace of foresight, God knowing the end from the beginning, puts him in a unique position to know how best to manage his creation. And it sounds like Elihu's grabbing onto this idea, but I'm not sure it fully got to him. And interestingly enough, when it says his creation, that means us. We're part of God's creation. It's not just the earth and the trees and the animals. Just because we have the power of reason, unlike any other part of creation, doesn't mean we can somehow, somehow slip out from under God's management because we can just think for ourselves. Yeah, God manages all that stuff, but I got a brain and it really thinks well and I could just... No. See, that's not what he's saying. So he's given, this, he's, he's given these pictures, and he gets really vivid then as, as he starts to wind down. In chapters uh, uh, 36 and 37, he gets really vivid, and he starts talking more, less about, about the reason for punishment, and he just starts talking about God and who God is. And, and in 36, what he does is he kind of, he, he shows these just really interesting images. The po his poetry, by the way, he's a younger guy. But his writing style and his poetry is way more eloquent than his friends. For me, I was reading this going, hey, for the first time, this, guy, this guy's got some really cool imagery, really neat words. Now, the other guys were just too worried about piling on, I think, with Job. Um, anyway, he eloquently describes God as ruling over both the wicked and the righteous. See, justice goes over everybody. You don't only get justice if you're wicked. You get justice if you're righteous as well. And he describes God's mercy of suffering. I ran across that term in one of my studies, and I thought, ooh, I like that. The mercy of suffering. How is it merciful? Just the example Elihu gave. Maybe you have suffering, but it steers you away from something that would be much, much worse. Maybe something with eternal consequences, because what we live through in this life generally doesn't have eternal consequences. It's our decisions that we do with what we do, what happens to us in this life. Anyway, he says that it might bring one to return to God's ways and be restored. Suffering can be a way to make you different than you are, not just to punish you for sin. And the other part, important part uh, that we see, the picture that we see from Elihu in this poem, is that when, when God speaks, whether it be through suffering or blessing, whatever the technique he is, when he speaks, we have an opportunity and I would almost say an obligation, an opportunity to respond. Because as he goes through that, as he goes through that, that his speech, he talks about some people listen and some people don't listen. You can either listen to God, and those that listen to God typically get blessed and have, a better, have it go better for them. And then that those, that those that don't listen, he says, uh, they perish. And that's Elihu's take on it. And I would say there's a, a, a modicum of truth in that. It doesn't necessarily mean you'll perish immediately. But I think he's right. Now, I remember going to, um, I, I went to Ball State University 
for, for my undergrad degree. And um, when I was there, I, I was, I've been trying the last couple of days to think of the word. So the prerequisites you got to take that everybody, gen studies or whatever, when you just take, everybody has to take psychology, everybody has to take speech, everybody has to take English, everybody has to take, you know, underwater basket weaving, whatever. So you got to take the classes that everyone takes, right? One of those is speech. I don't think you can get through college without taking a speech class. Well, I was pretty crafty. And I did some research, talked to some people that had gone to Ball State and found out that there was a speech class that counted as a speech class, but you never had to give a speech. <laughs> so, hey, that's a win-win. I'm in. Where do I sign up? So I did that. Well, actually, I ended up loving the class. It was called Communications Analysis, but it wasn't about speech. We got to analyze other people's speech, which was kind of fun. I love poking holes at things. Um, but, but here's a saying that my, that my professor used. It was one of his favorites, and I've adopted it because I, I don't like use it all the time, but I think this kind of thinking is perfect. You cannot not communicate. No matter what you do, if somebody says something to you and you don't reply, you didn't say something, guess what? You said something. You just didn't say it with your words. So when God comes at you with a dream or God pushes you around with a disease or God takes something from you that you thought was really important and you know it's God, if you just turn your back and ignore it and pretend it's not there, you're communicating something. You're not just not hearing. Your answer is no by default. So don't think you can get away with this. Well, I'm just not going to listen. Well, not listening you're communicating, you're answering whether you like it or not. I just want to throw that out there. Um, verse 11 and 12, so this would be in chapter, what chapter are we in here? Because now I didn't put it in my notes. I think we're still in 36. 11 and 12 tell us, oh yeah, we can listen or not listen. <laughs> I got ahead of myself. So we've been through that. Uh, so what's interesting is that Elihu, just like Job at one point, considers that maybe with this messenger idea, that there's this mediator. Isn't it interesting that Job, who already said in one of his little lament speeches, surely somebody will stand for me. And then Elihu agrees. He says, yeah, you know what? Perhaps there could be a messenger, someone that would come and love you enough or have grace on you enough to go to God and say, you know what? I have found a ransom for that person. So don't send him to the pit. I mean, that's like a trail of crumbs to the cross, isn't it? These, these Old Testament pictures, that's just leading us right to Jesus. And we have the advantage of seeing where those, where those breadcrumbs are going, and they didn't. So that's kind of, so he kind of ends his, his discussion about Job there. He kind of lays off Job a little bit. I'm sure he's thinking, well, Job can lick his wounds now. I got my, I got, I got you know, I said enough on that. So now he turns to the friends. And he's, now he says, now, you guys, I'm angry at you because you continue to assume Job is guilty, and yet you bring zero evidence. None of you made any reasonable, cogent, recognizable argument as to why Job suffers. You just want to say, well, obviously he sinned, but nobody can point to anything. Nobody sees that in his life. No, there's no reports of that in his life. You just assume that that's how it works. And he may not, in his heart of hearts, disagree with that assessment, because I really believe we see Elihu at the end kind of turn back to this, well, at the end of the day, probably there's something in your life you need to, you need to get 
forgiven for. But to that end, Job suffers as a result of some sin. That's their bottom line. And, and that's what they're saying. And he says, but you haven't produced anything to support that. So, and then it's a big change. So then, then the young, this young man goes into this really beautiful, the, the last two chapters, uh, really eloquent language. And he, he starts off and he starts acknowledging God's justice. He's saying God is just. God hasn't, God hasn't changed how, how his justice works. We're just not seeing it right. He said he rules his creation according to his justice. And he gives all these examples of his greatness in his ruling. And then he starts contrasting those with, with mankind. And so every time he gives an example, you know, uh, there, was a, there was one of the passages where he's asking, he says, so who, does God an- who did God answer to when he made the waters and the waves? And then he, gives, and then he comes back and says, well, but mankind, you know, we drowned or whatever. He's just, every time he says, God's this, and he didn't consult anybody, because that's God. And then he, he explains then how we're so much less in position. So he's drawing this contrast. God is in this position. We, you know, I, I guess that's a human thing. We kind of think higher is, is a better position. I don't know. So God's higher, and we're lower. And we kind of understand what that means in our culture. And he keeps drawing this contrast. And then in chapter 37, he turns it up completely differently. He leaves us out of the picture, and he's, it's just like this, this tour de force of describing God's greatness and his majesty, and he uses all these beautiful images of, of thunderclouds and rain and lightning, and, and just it's just, you go, wow, and those things are so powerful. I mean, we just had this tornado, this little bitty storm on the grand scope of the country, pop through Nashville and wipe out a whole bunch of stuff. And Elihu's saying, that's the power and majesty of our God. But you'll notice every example he gives, because we're talking about God being having justice on the wicked and the, and the righteous, could go good or bad. Either way, could go good or bad. So rain, if rain falls where you're having a drought, it's a good thing. So rain could bring an end to drought. But if rain could also, rain could also come and cause a huge flood. That's not a good thing. But it just depends on your position. It depends on the situation that that rain falls on. Lightning. This is a weird example, but you can look it up if you don't believe me. You can Google it. It's true. Um, So lightning, right, which we can, it can strike and mess up your house. I mean, it could cause damage directly. It can cause a power outage, all these things that lightning tends to do when we have these big storms. Did you know that before we did like managed forestry and so forth, when the, when the forest became too dense and there was too much tinder and stuff, a lightning strike could cause a fire and actually thin out the forest, and it was a healthy, normal, natural process that God has set up. So lightning could be good to kind of manage his creation. But lightning can also be destructive. It depends on who you are and what your circumstance is. I think that's interesting that in all these examples, you can find a, a way that that's good. You can find in a way that it, it's bad. And good and bad being kind of the only words I can come up with that kind of sort of describes that. So let me ask you this. Should God take our advice? I mean, is there something that we, when I be you, I, that we can add to God? Is there something that I could bring to God? Is there anything that you think you could bring to God that he hasn't already created and given you already. 
Anything you think that he didn't already give you that you can bring back to him? Because I'm going to tell you, uh, we're all saying, well, no. And those are the questions. As I was reading this last two chapters, those are the questions that began swirling in my head. Man, should I be given... Do I go to God and try to tell him how to run his business? I mean... I mean, it, it's this crazy, and, and as I was running through that, I immediately went back to uh, Genesis, chapter 3. This is exactly what's going on. This is a picture, I think, that Elihu gives us that should hearken us right back to Genesis, chapter 3, where man becomes arrogant enough to consider that he can decide for himself the definitions of things like what's right what's wrong, what's punishment, what's reward, what's blessing. We think we get to decide the definitions on those things. And then Elihu takes it just one more step because now he accuses Job of not only self-defining justice, but then going to God and trying to explain to God this new improved definition of justice. Can you imagine that conversation? It's like, it's like, it's like he goes, no, 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 God. Wait, hang on, God. Wait, hold on. Let me explain to you how your justice works. Can you imagine that conversation? And, and when I say that, I've got to tell you, it's getting a little warm in here because I've been that. Any of you ever uh, recently given God some good advice? Guilty? I am. It's like, yeah, me too. It's, so it's just me? You got none of you, none of you thought? Okay. You ever, you, ever, you ever find yourself going to God and explaining, explaining the situation? I'm just like, oh, okay, obviously, God, sorry. Obviously, you're not listening. You're not, you're not, maybe you're not catching the nuance of my story. And you try to, let me just explain it to you. If I could just explain it, if you just listen for a minute. Anyone else? Yeah. <laughs> I've been there, man. He's just like, how arrogant. What is that? Just, I mean, just saying those words, just kind of muttering those phrases, it's like it just makes me cringe because it's so utterly foolish. And I think this is the crux of what Elihu is saying against Job when he says, and this is chapter 34, verses 35 to 37. So it's a short thing, but this is what Elihu says. Job speaks without knowledge. His words lack insight. Oh, that Job might be tested to the utmost for answering like a wicked man. To his sin he adds rebellion. Scornfully he claps his hands among us and multiplies his words against God. Now, interestingly, in the end, this, is, this verse betrays Elihu as well as teaching us something. But it betrays Elihu as obviously assuming that he must have sinned and he had to throw it in there. When we'll find out over the next few weeks, God will continue to say, well, he never sinned. So that's good news for us. When you go to God, and I'm going to tell you that you do it, and say, well, God, let me, let, me, let me run this path. Let me explain this to you so you have a better picture and a better understanding of what really is going on. When you do that, it's not necessarily sin, okay? But I'll tell you what, you're treading in an area where God may just push back just a little bit. And when he does, it'll look like the way he says it needs to look like. It could look like suffering. It could look like calamity. It could look like a bad dream. I don't know what it's going to look like, what God's going to use, because those things are in his purview and not ours. Isn't it funny that Elihu, after going through this section where he describes this lofty potential 
uh, different purpose for God, for God's interaction with us, that he then doesn't listen to his own speech because he goes right back to, well, you must have sinned. You're like, a, you're like a, being a wicked man. And on top of that, on top of your sin, you're adding rebellion. See, we get so stuck. Have you ever been so stuck? If, if, if something was presented to you that really pushed hard against what you thought you already believed, some foundational thing in your faith and the way God is and the way your faith is and the way your life interacts with God, if something that was clearly right came and pushed into that, would you be willing to let go or would you dig your heels in like a lion? Because I'm telling you, we don't see God the way we need to see God. We're so influenced by our culture and we're so influenced by the baggage of our parents and the church we went to when we were four. And God sometimes just says, hey, I need to nudge you a little bit to wake you up out of that rut. Doesn't mean you're sinning, just means you're thinking wrongly. It's funny that Elihu couldn't get that. So, what are my takeaways? Now, first of all, um, I know every good message, if you go to any, I didn't go to a seminary, but if you, I hear this all the time, it's got to have three points, and they've got to be nice, concise, easy to memorize, easily discussed, something you can really take home and remember, and it's even better if you use a little alliteration, that's why they all start with the same word, right? Like, uh, consider, and convulse, and capitulate, I don't know, just two or three words, um, then, then it's somehow it's easy to remember. So knowing that, I'm just going to tell you, I'm going to throw that all out because I ain't doing that. So I'm going to break all the rules. I've got three basic slides, but there's not three points. I'm just not that good, okay? Um, so here's my takeaways. Suffering can be used to shape your character. It doesn't have to be for sin. People suffer without sin. Know it because it's truth. And the other thing, the other part of that is we don't have to know the reason. We always want answers. And when you want an answer, you know what it means? You don't trust. He's like, well, I'll trust, but I just have to know. No. Trusting means you don't have to know. That's called trusting. And I'll get to that in one of my last slides. So God can use suffering to shape your character. He wants to mold you. He wants to mold me into a better image bearer of him. That's why God made mankind to be an image of him in his creation. And he said, go, subdue, rule over. But when you do it, if you're doing it on my behalf, which was the plan, then you have to do it my way, within the bounds that I set up. You don't get to define the road you're on. And the first thing we did, first early time period, way back, mankind said, yeah, but you know what? I think I want to pave my own road. I want to make up the, I want to set the boundaries. And that's what we do. How arrogant to assume that we know the reasons for God's management of what he created. And even Elihu says, maybe we don't know why Job suffers. So secondly, it's God and God alone that defines righteousness and justice. We cannot. The purpose and the workings of his creation are only within his domain. We don't decide why. We're never to decide why. Trying to discover why isn't necessarily as bad as thinking you know why or wanting to determine why. 
Well, I want it to be why. I want to determine the why. It's because. That's just like going to God and saying, hey, let me explain this to you one more time how this is supposed to work. Because I know we do that, and you roll your eyes just like I do when you're doing it. God determines those standards and the boundaries in which we move forward in his kingdom. And lastly, and I guess, hey, this makes it uh, three points. Sorry. Actually, there's more than one on the slide. Just ignore that and pretend like I did it right. Um, we must trust that God is just and he rules and governs his creation according to that justice. Don't question whether God is doing it right question whether or not we're perceiving it right, because chances are, which means 100% of the time, it's our perception problem, not God's management problem. He rules justly, and there's not a single bit of evidence any one person has ever developed that would demonstrate otherwise. Short term, things look like one thing, and the long term, we're going to find out, and we usually find out even before this life moves on, that it worked out better than you thought it was going to. We have to trust God and trust he will preside according to his justice. Anyone besides me get, feel like a little inward big stick poking you? The idea that I could somehow question, I don't mean ask a question, but I mean truly question God. When he's, can the created thing question the creator? If I went to God, I have to recognize first that he invented the idea of me. Then he set out and he formed me. And then he took and he took a little piece of his spirit and breathed it into me. And it's only by his breath of life and his spirit that I am even here. For me to go to him and try to say, what's up with that? Is the most arrogant and corrupt position I could ever take. And I'm guilty regularly of doing it. That is horrible. My, Lord, change my mind. That's what he's saying to Job. I need to nudge you. I might need to push you a little bit to change the way you think. You're not necessarily sinning, but you might be thinking wrongly or understanding wrongly. The repeating pattern through all of this so far that we've been through is, is recognizing God's voice, at least what Elihu is talking recognizing God's voice and letting that help us return to him again. By God's admission, we still need to return. Job still needs to return. Doesn't mean he sinned. Job needs to return. And we've all been there, and we do it all the time, and we need to return all the time. We need to listen for God's joy, voice. Are you guilty of defining justice for yourself? Have you heard God? Maybe you've heard God. And you know, I'm not saying a voice necessarily, but you knew it was God. And you just brushed it aside. Well, that's probably not God. I don't know what that is. Because you're so afraid? Because somebody might know? Because you might, there might be shame involved? you make excuses and just explain it away? And to all those questions, I would say, yeah, me too. So here's what I would like, okay? So um, 
If you are that, in that place, and you recognize it today, you feel like, gosh, I need to return to God. I need to, this, I, I just need to recognize it and just recognize I'm not necessarily full of sin, but I'm not thinking correctly. I'm understanding wrongly who God is, and he's been trying to tell me, he's been nudging me, and now I need, I recognize it, and I, I need to move. I know we're all uncomfortable with this, but um, quite frankly, I don't care. Uh, <laughs> um, I want to give you an opportunity to join in with real friends, not friends like Job had that supposedly are coming there to comfort them and just heaped it on. We're the body of Christ. We follow Jesus. This is a place that is designed for us to be real friends to each other when we're suffering, when we're hurting, when we have questions, even if we're in sin. We walk through stuff together. We don't pile on judgment. God condemns. We don't. So here's what I want to do. The band's going to come out, at least a couple, and they're going to play some soft music here. We always close with a song, so we're going to get there. Don't worry about that. Um, I want to tell you, if that's you, if you feel that in your heart, I'm going to ask you to be bold. I'm going to ask you to get up and come down here, and we're going to pray together. Now, you don't have to pray with We always say, oh, there's people down here to pray with you, and there will be, and we always have that. If you want to pray by yourself, that's fine. I don't want that to be the reason you won't come. Now, there's nothing magical about coming down here to pray that you can't accomplish in your seat, but I will tell you this from personal experience, and from watching it in others. I've witnessed this hundreds of times. I've experienced it. There's something powerful about moving your body, your physical self, that's in alignment with what's going on here in your heart. If you're feeling it here, it's easy to kind of just put it away and then press it down. But there's something powerful I'm telling you about moving your body that is in alignment with that. So I'm going to say, if that's you, I want you to come down here while we play, and I want you to be ready to pray. Come to meet God. Ask God. Say, hey, man, I've been, this has been going on, whatever's going on in your life. Ask him. Tell me how I, need, what, how I need to respond. Don't ask him why it's happening. Say, how do I need to respond? Do I need to turn to the left or to the right? Am I, have I turned to the left or the, to the right? Is there sin? You probably know if there is. Is, is, is all that there? Would you be bold enough to do that? Maybe you're having emotional problems. Maybe you're emotionally suffering. Maybe you're mentally suffering. Maybe you're physically suffering. That's not the point. The point is that can be used by God to shape us and push us. And here's what we offer. No answers. I don't have an answer. I don't have an answer for your suffering. I'll tell you what I do have and what we should have as a body. I have the ability with the compassion of God to say to you, just know that I'm here. I'm here. You need something. I don't know. I don't have your answer. Sorry, my heart's breaking. We suffer with things that we don't love each other well. You don't have to have an answer, but I want you to know you have a friend here. We have real friends that will suffer with you, walk through it with you. Let you discover God's answer. We don't have to have that for you. We don't have to know why. You don't have to know why. Just know that you can respond. So would you do that? They're just going to pray, or they're just going to play for a few minutes. Now, when this is done, when you're done, there's no time limit. If you come down here and you're, I know we, we do this. People come and pray. You can play, you can play. People come and pray, and then, then we start singing, and they get up and leave, and they're like, oh, maybe they cut me off. Did we cut them off? I don't want to. You know what? You are infinitely 
infinitely more valuable than some song we can sing. Seriously. When you're done, when you've accomplished whatever you need to accomplish, then we'll celebrate together in a song. This is not about a clock. This is not about some timing thing. We're not going to cut you off. I want you to be free to do that. There's no shame here. There's no judgment here. Share your suffering. Let's do that.